What's happening in the canine industry? For all the latest news, views and expert opinions, stay right here for the canine paradigm. You'll hear from industry leaders, experts, doyens of the industry, learned colleagues, movers and shakers, and the odd Randy guest. Get the latest insights and expert advice from both here and abroad from the people in the know. Now, here are your hosts, Glenn Cook and Pat Stewart. And I'm Lofty Fulton, and I'm out of here. Hey, Glenn, what are you doing over there? Well, you know, it's a brave new world, apparently. So there's plenty of indoor activities for everybody. Yeah. yeah. I'm just busy at my home right now, Skyping you in between my uh, online lessons with people. Yeah, that's good. I've seen that you've started to change your platform a little bit because we can't go off and do our overseas seminars or local seminars or even catch up with friends and colleagues in the park. We can actually change that to online. So there's plenty of uh, dog training opportunities for people. They Mm. can get in touch with us online. But you know what else they should do in this time of uh, difficulty and isolation? What's that? Stockpile dog training equipment. Wouldn't that be crazy? Yeah, if they're in Australia, they can get that equipment from Ironswick Dog Quip. And if they're in North America, they could get it from Canine Dynamics. What about if they need some tasty treats for their dogs? Well, if they need tasty treats for their dogs, the best place to get that is from Bright's Bites. So they can visit our friend Mark LaPointe, the Ferminator up in Queensland, and Kylie, who's in Victoria. Absolutely. Yeah. May as well stockpile dog equipment while you're stockpiling toilet paper. <laughs> so, <laughs> so before we wind this ridiculous ad up, tell our people how they can find you if they're looking for you for online consultations. Yeah, you can go to my website. It's operantk9.com.au. There's a training tab and there's the book a session. You can do that there. I'm doing them over Zoom now. It's really cool. We can share screens and we can talk and mm. I'm really happy with it. Yeah, How about great. you? Are you doing that? Yeah, I'm doing a few consults. I've started doing a few. I've been approached to do a few more. So people can either contact me directly and we can set something up or they can contact my team. I've got Kana and Twisty and Tegan from Canine Evolution. They're doing online consults. And while you're still allowed to, they're doing the social distancing of one-on-one consults if people are are well and they're presenting okay. So they're going through all the correct procedures with that and we're still doing all our daycare at Pet Resorts Australia. Perfect. Yeah, there's plenty of options for people in a crisis. There's plenty of people around the world offering great services and great techniques, so take advantage of it while you can. Yeah, get on it. Welcome back to the Canine Paradigm. I'm your host, Pat Stewart. I'm joined in studio today by my co-host, Glenn Cook. And on the line from, I mean, we are really practicing social distancing. (laughs) We have on the line all the way from the USA, Mr. Pat Nolan. Hey, good evening. Hey, thanks for joining us again, Pat. Yeah, it's morning for us, evening for you, right? Yeah. Great to see you as always, Pat. Yes. Good to be seen. (laughs) Well, we, we can actually see each other. Good thing about having Skype during these times of social distancing is that you can be all the way over the other side of the world and we've still got Skype and Zoom and everything. So like I've said to a few people, you can't actually make physical contact or shake hands or give anyone a hug or anything like that, but you can still have dinner together and stay connected, stay connected, share a conversation. So yeah, this is great. Remain socially, but not electronically distant. Yeah. That's it. I was laughing the other day. I did see pictures of you and Connie out right out in the middle of a field. I think it was Connie out with the dogs and you were saying practicing social distance and she was like almost half a kilometer away. 
Yeah, that was fun. Connie's a big walker and walks the dogs twice a day. And uh, I pitch in when I can and enjoy. It's a nice, quiet time together. Nice. Hey, let's get into it. Something interesting is happening mm. in the dog world. And you being the detection guru that you are, tell us about what's going on. The father of scent. That's embarrassing. I don't think I'm either of those, but um, <laughs> I've been very fortunate. I have been approached by a group that's working with the Penn Vet Working Dog Center. And Penn Vet and this team want to train dogs and see if we can train dogs to detect the changes in the people when they are infected with the coronavirus that causes the COVID-19. Mm. The goal would be to detect coronavirus or COVID-19 positive people before they were symptomatic. Mm-hmm. And so you get another safety layer. Wow. You know, that would be spectacular if there was some sort of test. This is what I've been sort of saying for a little while is one of the ways I see this kind of panning out is a test that would allow travel and that sort of thing. Say we could start traveling again on planes and you have a test before you get on the plane and say, like, you're good, you're good. Nope, you can't get on because you're- You smell bad like yeah, corona. You've got the, you've got it or, or mm. you're, you know, a carrying or whatever. And so if there's success in that, it would completely change the world and, and maybe get us back to normal a lot quicker. What's the plan? How on earth would you do it? I'm sorry, certainly be an additional tool to help in that process. Yeah, absolutely. So how on earth would you go about doing that? Well, the human body produces a normal scent that's off-gassing all the time, VOCs, Mm. volatile organic compounds, and we're off-gassing all the time. And when the body, the cells in the body are under the stress of different diseases, it off-gasses it changes what's coming off the human. Mm -hmm. And the hope is that there is a unique smell that's identifiable, unique to coronavirus positive or COVID-19 positive individuals so that uh, you could tell when the person was infected before they were symptomatic or if they were an asymptomatic carrier. That would be spectacular. Mm. There's been a lot of discussion pre all this sort of breakout happening about whether or not coronavirus could be detected. And a few people messaged me privately and said, what are your thoughts about it? You remain quite silent. And I said, well, anybody who knows anybody around about scent around the world will tell you that if it gives off a gas, it can be detected. The trouble is, is scientists will need to isolate the specific compound to be able to ensure it's significant to itself and different than everything else around its surroundings. Yes, you need a unique identifying Mm. characteristic, unique. You don't want just any coronavirus. I think there's seven coronaviruses that are are floating around active in the human population. And uh, one of which is the, this new coronavirus, which causes COVID-19. And so we need a dog that, you know, some of your common colds are coronaviruses and uh, you need to be selective to identify the coronavirus that causes COVID-19. And so the Penn Vet guys, uh, what else have they been involved in? Like, how have they been the ones that have decided to get this going? And, and can you tell us a little bit more about them? Well, they have been involved with detection for narcotics and for explosives, but also cancer research. Mm-hmm. And they've done some detection work identifying different types of cancers, again, from the changes in the off gases of the human. Mm-hmm. At some level, they can start with the cancer cells, but then you need to break out to, you know, if you're scanning a person for lung cancer, Mm -hmm. you can't 
hope that the dog's going to actually smell an individual cancer cell in them, but smell the changes that occur in the human body when it's processing or reacting or fighting the cancer. So they've done, I think, a lot of work with different cancers. And so they have a research facility. Having done that work with the cancer stuff, they've got a facility and and equipment and set up to facilitate this with the coronavirus. Yes, they're teaming with a hospital there that's collecting the samples. And I think initially the plan will be that we'll train it at my home in Kennel because we are isolated. We can be isolated. We have the scent wheels. Um, they will deliver the targets. We'll train, imprint and train there. And then uh, when the dogs are ready, we'll test them, take them on the road and test them up up at Penn. But they're, they're kind of shut down right now what they can do. And I think... Uh, the initial plan is to work at, at from my facility mm-hmm. and then move there. But yes, they're doing the science end of it. They have people collecting the and sterilizing and, or I don't know exact terminology for that, but there will be no live virus in my hands. <laughs> right. Okay. And so what dogs are you planning on training it with? Primarily I'm looking for Labrador retrievers. Mm-hmm. I drive Labrador retrievers, well socialized, well structured, you know, physically sound, clear headed, uh, environmentally sound, lots of drive, and um, but calm and clear-headed. Yeah, but I mean, do you have the dogs on property at the moment, mm. or is that part of your process? We, we do not. We are seeking dogs. I've put out some feelers, and we have some dogs to to evaluate. We have potential candidates, but uh, we're not in a position to buy dogs just yet. That's pretty cool information. So, how can people get involved and assist in this if they if they wanted to? Right now, the pen vet program is only partially funded. I believe they have 25 or 30% of the funding they're looking to start with. And anyone that would be interested or any organizations that would be interested in contributing and partnering with PenVet on this, it's PenVet Working Dog Center. And the principal researcher on this project is Cynthia Otto, O-T-T-O. Could you give an explanation of like, say someone did want to contribute money, what is the funding going to go to? Like, what are the costs in such a thing? You've got to buy dogs, I imagine. You've got to, the lab work, those kind of things. But what am I missing? Well, there's then purchasing dogs, the care of the dogs. The dog trainer gets paid. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's a tiny bit self-serving. I'm, I will get paid for my work in the project. Of course. The researchers get paid. There's uh, computer assets that are involved. They are partnering with a hospital to collect the samples. There's fees back and forth there. And then to properly handle the samples so that nobody's getting hurt. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's personal protective gear and uh, transportation of the samples and transportation of the animals to get moved for testing. And then volunteers or paid actors to come in if and when they move to testing on humans. Yeah, it's amazing some of these ordeals, I guess people don't really understand what goes on in the background when you're trying to implement something like this. Like it is a huge logistics battle in itself just to orchestrate it all and to get it all off the ground. And especially while we're dealing with something that is so unknown and that's the potential long-term aspect of it is that it's something that we're still trying to get our head around ourselves. Like we understand viruses i mean well virologists do they understand it we're just going off the information they're giving us but it's a lot of collaboration with different departments of people telling us what's changed what we need to know how to do it and then getting all the dogs set up and as you said there's a huge administration 
behind the scenes. And that's very important for people to understand when they're asking, where does the money go? Well, that money runs out really quickly. And that's the issue with it is because when there's so many hands that absolutely do need to be involved, it's not just going into a few people's pockets. There's a lot of investment behind the scenes that really do need access to funds. Oh, it's huge. Yeah. Something that's been interesting to me amidst all of this, especially, you know, outside of our space as well, when we talk about vaccines and all that kind of stuff, everybody wants to talk about fast tracking everything. Mm. And I think it's so important that everything is procedurally correct, especially like imagine, Pat, if you then did say, yep, look, these dogs are going to act as a weight of evidence. We can screen people entering hospitals or whatever, you know, and then people want to say, okay, but prove that to me. And how did we get to this point? There'll be a lot of burden of evidence other than, Mm. look, the dog can do it. Here he is performing the task. The chain of custody on all of that, like there's going to be a huge burden of evidence that goes along with that. Because I think about that, like people talk about fast tracking a vaccine and that sort of stuff. And not to be alarmist, but this is the kind of thing like, yeah, if you, without proper testing of these sorts of things, we might have a vaccine ready to go tomorrow and then we give it to everybody and three years later, the whole population's blind, right? Because we didn't, yeah. we don't know the yeah. outcome of these Well, things. that's how I Am Legend started, wasn't it? Uh, <laughs> yeah, something like that, right? <laughs> a mutated, yeah. mutated vaccine and it turned everyone into zombies. Yeah. Mm. Or the thalidomide. Yes, of the, exactly. Of the 50s and 60s. I that's think. a real I life example, yeah. Decade, but oh. Tell us it's about terrible. that. Give us the rundown of that because there would have been people that don't know what that is. Thalidomide was a drug that was brought out. And again, I'm embarrassed to say I don't remember if it was the 50s or 60s, but it was brought out as a uh, anti-nausea drug for women to be used in early pregnancy. And they distributed it quite freely. I believe in the, I know in the US and I believe in Europe too. Mm-hmm. And they found later uh, that they had a very high percentage of pretty severe birth defects from the children of the mothers that took this drug. Yeah. And the poor women were following their doctor's advice and it was a, a tragedy. Manifested mostly in limbs, didn't it? It was like misshapen sort of limbs as yes. the birth defect. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And that yeah. is the importance of why research and development really needs to be funded well and having the right people doing it as well. The other thing I'd like to know too, Pat, tell us a little bit about what's your knowledge on PenVet? Like give us a bit of background on them and what they've been doing. Well, they started shortly after the uh, 9-11, I believe, and they have been doing research on breeding, developing working strains, the genetics involved, they do work on the physical aspects of working dogs and the social aspects. They do work on handler training. And again, quite a lot of research, I think, in cancer detection and medical detection Mm. with canines. And how long have you been involved with them for? I have not had the pleasure of working with them. This is the first time I've been brought in on a project to work with them. And uh, I'm really looking forward to it. That's cool. And so they've reached out to you directly and said, hey, this is what we want to attempt to do. There was a partner defense contractor that I have done a fair amount of work with, um, partnered up with PenVet on this project. And they brought me in. That's how I got into the project. And uh, I've not had the pleasure of working with PenVet, but I've I've seen their work from afar and met some of their trainers and some of the and some of the researchers. 
It's a super exciting project. I, um, it I keep out curiosity. Yeah. <laughs> mm. I'm so interested in mm. the mechanics of it. I don't know how much you can explain in that, in that, like what you're planning to use. We've seen your scent wheels that you have set up. Is that going to play a role in it? How do you intend to imprint these dogs as much as you can tell us or, or able to? I uh, would love to hear about the process. I think that it's such an interesting thing. Certainly, I would like everybody listening to go and check out PenVet and consider donating because I think it's such a a way for us as an industry to assist in what's going on worldwide. And, mm. But I'd love to now hear about the process from you and th- I'm sure that would be very, very interesting to people as well. And do you intend to put that information out as you go or are you not able to do that? Or is, uh, I'm talking a lot. Tell us more about it. Of course, the results will be published in peer-reviewed journals. I don't control the release of that information. I think I can talk about how I would go about imprinting for this and um, – Again, I'm working with them, so it's a collaboration on the training design and plan. Sure. Um, but I imprint initially off-leash. I want the dog off-leash, and they come to investigate a can or a, a tube that holds it odor material, and I mark and pay that. I want to assign value to the target odor before I ask the dog to search for it. And once I've had a chance to reinforce the dog, For easy targets, four or five times more difficult targets, maybe 20, maybe 50 times, I reinforce on the odor. But then within the first session, I want the dog making a choice. I still consider it imprinting, but I'm adding more value to the odor in search drive. So after I've had the chance to imprint, you know, I've marked and paid several times for sniffing the can. And I like to use a remote feeder for this. Mm -hmm. So it comes up and sniffs, push the button. The feeder goes off. He runs to the feeder. I can move it a little bit. Mm-hmm. He sniffs it. He runs to the feeder. I can move it. Now, when he's at the feeder, I put that scent tube. He turns around and I let him see me put the scent tube into a bigger container mm-hmm. with a hole in it. He runs up and sniffs that and I mark it and he runs to the feeder. As soon as he will fully investigate this scent can, I put in a second one. I give him a choice. Mm-hmm. And so now he runs up and I put the wrong can or the empty can closer to the dog and the feeder than the target can. Mm -hmm. So he runs up, sniffs the first can that he comes to. Nothing happens for him. He looks up and sees the next can, drives forward and puts his face in and we mark it right away. So now I'm marking every time he investigates the can that contains the target odor. So I'm still imprinting. I'm not asking him to do anything except when you get to target odor, wonderful things happen. Yeah. And as soon as he moves from can to can, I add a third. I put in a control. So now we have a control, an empty can, and a target can. And I shuffle. That's one of the reasons I put the feeder away. So you've got the time. Behind away. I have the time to shuffle. He runs to the feeder. I keep it feeding. And I do my shuffle. Mm-hmm. He comes back and investigates. As soon as he'll do three, investigate three cans, I go to four. Often I can get to four cans in the first session and I would have the target can, one can that is empty, one can that holds a control, and then a distraction. Mm-hmm. And I present them in that order. I think the easiest choice he'll ever make in his life is there's nothing in this can. There's something in this can. That's the easy, you know, yeah. nothing or something. He's, he's not choosing target odor. He's just moving around and funny things happen when he gets to target odor every mm-hmm. time. 
wonderful things, exciting things. Once he'll make that choice willingly and quickly, I give him a little more difficult choice. I make a control. Suppose my target odor, and this won't be, but suppose the target odor was in a cotton bag. Mm -hmm. I would put a cotton bag, empty, clean cotton bag in the third can that I bring out. So now it's cotton bag, empty, and target odor. And we're only getting paid on target odor. The reason I want that control in there right away is I believe that part of defining what the target is, is defining what it's not. Mm, yes. And if the target is presented in a cotton bag and he's always reinforced for cotton bag and target, it becomes a compound stimulus for him. But I want to prove to him right from the beginning, hey, we're not looking for cotton bags. There's no value in cotton bags. Mm -hmm. That's the defining moment in any type of scent training work is teaching a dog well, for the dog, the only time they really understand what they're doing is when they understand what it's not they're looking for. So the first time they're ever imprinted on scent, like we're doing a lot of early stage imprinting and we're just working with this and we're shaping a behavior around this and the dog is not clicking to it because it hasn't learned what it's not supposed to do yet. And it's only when you introduce non-target odor, that's the first time when the dog is not rewarded off that and the dog goes, holy shit, it's all about the odor. It's not about the behavior of going up and sniffing something, it's going up and indicating on the odor itself. And I would just parse that out a little bit, not to argue, but just for precision, maybe my explanation would be a little different than yours Please. in that I don't ask for any change of behavior on the, the I don't ask for that. Mm. I just keep shuffling and I keep shuffling now. And again, if I can, by the end of the first session, I add in a strong distraction. So whatever I'm using for my reward, I typically put that in yep. in the first session. So we're not seeking reward. The only way to get reward is to path this through the target odor. And for a long time, I don't ask the dog to do anything except he's just looking. And whenever he gets to the right can, the crane that holds the target, I mark and pay. Mm. And when I start to see, you see those changes, they go by, they start to run by the can, they whoop, they wait a minute, they do a little head snap, or they hit the can real quickly and in a hurry to get to the next one, they start to leave, but then they say, oh, wait a minute, and they dive back in. When I see those changes, he's showing me that he knows the target odor, which one is the important one to me, and it becomes important to him. That's when he's showing me that it's becoming important to him. After I see those changes in him, then I start to manipulate a little bit what I want him to do. And the only thing I ask him to do is when you find target odor, if you stay there, I will pay you. Mm. I don't ask him. I don't want him to sit to down to to do anything, because for me, the freeze on odor is a perfect indication. I can tell when he locks up, boom, and he's staring at the camera, his nose is, you know, right there. I know which one he's indicating. And he doesn't pull away from the can to sit or to down. He stays right there in odor the whole time. He has more time on target with that freeze. And for me, particularly if I introduce a behavior early, so it's when you get to the right can, you sit, and then I pay you. You get to the right can, you sit, and then I pay you. You get to the right can, you sit, and then I pay you. Soon, I think, or not, not soon, but they assign value to the thing that's closest to the reward and the sit is closer to the reward than finding target odor. Mm. So 
interesting discussion the other night between Jerry Bradshaw and Pat on oh, yeah. the uh, controlled aggression. And not to say that there's only one way to train a dog, but for me, this makes most sense. And I put all my reward, I pile up all my reinforcement on finding odor. And I kind of make a promise, you find it and I'm going to pay you. And then it's just asking to wait a little bit longer as we, as we go along. Yeah, that's an important observation, Pat. There's a lot of people who are very concerned with when they hear other people's explanation of doing something, they think, oh, maybe I'm doing something wrong. For a long time, I've, I've spoken to people and they're doing things absolutely correct. They may not know the science behind it. They may not know how to describe exactly what they're doing. However, when you actually go out on the field with them and you watch what they're doing, you think, yeah, that's right. You're pragmatically doing exactly what you need to be doing. Probably your explanation or the academic side of it is lacking, but the pragmatic side is fine. And then they're concerned when people talk about them about their system, about what they're doing, they think, oh, maybe I'm doing it all wrong. And then they get concerned with the fact that there's a different style of doing things. It doesn't mean that you can't implement two strategies and come up with a better one. There's the possibility that that does exist. And then there's also people who suffer the Dunning-Kruger effect is that they actually do know things, but then they start to get worried that, or maybe I don't know what I'm doing, but they're actually doing it extremely well. And I've seen that with people before and they get hung up on the fact that somebody else has explained it and they're thinking, wow, they did such a magnificent way of explaining it maybe they know more than I do and maybe their system is better and then they start to doubt themselves, which sometimes it's a good thing to push you outside your comfort barrier and encourage you to grow a little bit. And sometimes that's not so good when you're already doing good work. Yeah. And dog training is art and science. Absolutely. Uh, There's a feel for it. There's no, you can't have a rule book for every interaction. It's a dynamic situation and you need to understand principles that you can apply to these new situation and techniques can change from dog to dog in session to session. Mm. The principles of how a dog learns don't change, but, but we can find techniques that speak most directly to a specific dog. Backing up just a second. Once the dogs will search for cans, I put them on a carousel because it's much easier for me to spin a carousel, flat wooden carousel with a, a lazy Susan hinge in it. And I can get more reps when I can manipulate the dog enough that the dog will pause on odor. Now, a couple of things I do in my early imprint, I don't give any command. I don't really encourage him to start. I just turn him loose in the room. He chooses of his own volition to work. Mm -hmm. And when he opts out, he starts losing interest. I stop for the day, but I don't command him at the odor. I don't present the odor. He's off leash working this all himself. Mm. So I need the dog in the can is a large one foot cubic box with a hole in the top and he stops to investigate and he's, he kind of stops his movement and he puts his nose dips down to either sniff the top or dip into it. And somewhere in that stroke, I can mark that behavior. Mm -hmm. Once he begins to pause, now I go to a carousel, the scent wheels because he gets to the odor and he pauses on the odor and I can mark that. When he's running around checking cans real quickly, I can catch him checking a big scent box, a one foot cubic scent box. I can check him when he investigates that. I can mark it, catch it, that behavior and mark it. But I am not quick enough to mark when he runs by a, you know, one and a half inch 
stainless steel scent can yep. that we put on the wheels. So he has to pause for me first on odor before I go to the carousels. And I go there because I can do get more reps. I can do more work training and less cleaning up. Okay. So that, that's an interesting point. I've wondered about that about your carousels is that you don't change over to those until you get a decent pause when the cans are just on the floor and you have those, what, a couple of feet apart or something like that when they're on the floor? About two foot apart. I I have on my website, patnolan.com, there's some pictures, I think, and if not, I'll put some up tomorrow of the wooden carousel I use. They're on 30 inch radius and it makes the holes centered about two feet apart. Okay, cool. Which is a nice stride for the big grown dog. Mm -hmm. um, when they're less than two feet, I still think they can tell apart which they are, but like they take a step and they're kind of checking behind them. Mm -hmm. So two feet works well for me. Perfect. You and Connie are doing educational courses on this on your website as well, aren't you? Uh, Connie is, has quite a lot online for competitive obedience and tricks that transition to obedience mm -hmm. and work to do with your new pup. I have some online courses. Right now, I'm only sharing them with the groups that I do in-person live courses for, mm -hmm. but I am trying to flesh that out so that it, the whole program for directionals and detection would be available online. I'm working to that. My hope is that by August, they'll be available. That's actually quite tricky, isn't it? Sort of off the topic of scent, but more to education. How much, when you're creating an online course that you're never going to meet the people for, mm. it's such a tricky one when you're not getting that feedback. I, I, have a, I have a similar sort of thing. I have a lot of online content that I give people access to that have learned from me in person because I've met them in person. This, like the online stuff is the, the high points and some extreme detail that you can pause and take notes and all that kind of stuff. But I know you, we've spoken, so I can, like, I made sure that you understood the important parts and now you can have access to this. I'm in the same process, like every dog trainer on the planet at the moment mm. in fleshing out my online stuff. And it's sort of like, oh man, this is hard. It's a hard thing to, to put together a complete online course. Uh, yeah, Connie's done a wonderful job there. We ha She has the obedienceroad.com, which has from starting puppies up through the courses that you need for the all the AKC, the CD, companion dog, companion dog, excellent utility dog, up through competitive uh, arch dogs. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's broken into five sections and 120 some odd videos with yeah. individual breaking out each lesson in print and video and audio. Um, yeah. Very well done. That's the obedience road.com. Mm, nice. Yeah. Going back on what you were saying before, Pat Stewart, because <laughs> we're double down on Pat's again. Before I go into this, I was laughing the other day because all three of us were talking on Facebook where we we're teeing this, this interview up and it's got Pat, Pat. So I'm thinking, <laughs> which Pat's talking now? <laughs> Going back on what Pat Stewart was talking about before the online content, I'm getting people now that want to do aggression consults and that's one of my, yeah, exactly. That is a, an eyebrow raising thing. And it's because people now have got no access to physically being able to come out and, you know, show me their dog and go through it. People are now saying, you know, will you bend your rules now? And I, I really want to say no, but also I realize that, now they actually are stuck. They're not just being lazy and, and not being incompetent in order to try and get to a trainer. They literally are stuck in their home like the rest of the world are. So I'm kind of having to break my own rule a little bit, but I'm also explaining to people that although I am 
being flexible in it, I'm still not giving guarantees and I'm telling people while I'm making it very clear to them that it's an extremely delicate operation and it needs very, very sound work before they can proceed further with it without actually going out onto the field. And it's like Pat Stewart identified before is that even when you're doing all this work, NAPOPO or your scent detection work, when you're advising it online, I mean, the scent detection work, you can actually get them to video it and you can follow along with it. And, you know, if, you, if you've got someone who can camera work them in the background, you can advise them live. The difficulty with when you're working with aggression work is that it's not always present when you want it to be present. And sometimes you don't want it to be present when you're not there to actually help implement the strategy because the handler themselves is, and I don't mean this in a derogatory sense, but when they're inept to actually deal with it in the first place, sometimes they actually need you to help them step into the process. So that's the difficult where it, it lies. It's yeah, dangerous too. It, that's it's dangerous. That's right. Yeah. That's, I guess that's the waffly point that I'm trying to get to is that it's mm-hmm. dangerous. Mm-hmm. And that's where I really stress the importance of working with a canine professional who is adapt in that sort of work to do it. But scent detection, you know, you can adapt this to working online. You can actually, or if you've got someone who can help you with the video work, hold the camera for you and follow you around while you're observing. You can be on the other side of the world and you can still observe their work and advise them from afar. And that's the wonder that we do actually possess with this technology. However, some of those little nuances that you were talking about before, that's where the difficulty is laid into it is that you're not right there at that time to help them with their timing better or see something that's happening off camera that you could help them and say, okay, that's the problem. That's where your dog is false indicating or whatever it is, or you're not picking up on the indication properly or the freeze properly or when the dog has changed direction. So it really does rely on having good access to good vision and somebody who's videoing it properly. Yes. And again, It is a dynamic situation, and the aggression is a particularly difficult one. Mm. Uh, And and I guess some, you know, I think I've read that somebody was snowed in in Antarctica or they were wintered in in Antarctica, and they called in instructions, and she did a surgery on herself. This was a doctor, but Mm -hmm. somebody was talking her doing a surgery on herself. I think that's the story I remember, whether it's true or not. Yeah, appendix removal. I've read the same thing. If you can't have a doctor do it, you doing it yourself there in that situation is better than dying. Yeah. But it's still a lot nicer to have the doctor be there to help, you know, and, and instead of having to do it yourself there. Mm. Um, and then there's a difficulty on for going online that I always struggle some with how much detail. Yeah. If you, you're showing a simple exercise, you're going to stop the dog en route to a target. But you, he can't stop until you tell him, but he must stop when you tell him. Sounds simple, but it can be difficult to end up with that working right. Yeah. And we use an electronic collar to to control consequences in the distance when the dog gives you behavior that you don't want. We push for the behavior we do want. But now, if you showed a video and you're trying to teach that lesson and you showed a video of the 4,000 different ways that it's gone wrong in the last 30 years... No one's going to sit through 4,000 <laughs> illustrations of what could go wrong. Yeah. And and if you just show a dog doing it, a trained dog, you say go, he goes, you say sit, and he sits. You say, see, that's the way it works. They don't learn any, anything from there. So mm. it's difficult balance to show the right amount of trouble and detail. And that's it, right? It's, uh, it's those little nuances. And it could be 30 or 40 years of information that you have a concentrated accumulation of that 
that's where, you know, Pat and I talk about the presence of the master coach mm-hmm. and that's where the presence of the master coach is inevitably important because they step in right there and they say, okay, here it is. This is the whole linchpin of your training program and this is why it's going wrong just because of this one little behavior right now. And that really is, is the bridging behavior into getting it all right. And as soon as you show it to people, they go, oh my God, it, it was so obvious but they didn't see it because they were looking at it two-dimensionally instead of three-dimensionally. Yes. The first few times someone ever said after my explanation about training, gee, this is really simple. And uh, I was a little offended. I thought, you know, (laughs) but but really it's not offensive anymore. I kind of take it as a compliment because it can be complicated, but if we can explain it simply, that's easier to process and do. Yeah. And, and you, so. There is a life saying that says that if you can't explain it simply enough, then you don't know it well enough. Well, I took it as a, as a compliment and I still do. So. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I guess that. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I've talked about this on one of the shows that we did before when it talks about people who are at highly competent level of any type of information, they can be so adapted at the information that it makes perfect sense to them. You know, when they're talking to other peers, it also makes perfect sense to them. But when you introduce a novice into it and then you look at them as if to say, well, this is simple. Why don't you get it? It's because it's the first time they've ever clapped their ears on the information or their eyes on the on what they're witnessing. So to them, like this is a mountain that you're already standing at the top of, you know, and you're yelling down from the peak of the mountain saying, well, you know, it was easy to get up here. And they're saying, well, you can say that now because you're at the top. You know, but where do I start? Where do I actually, where do I start my first foothold in the journey on upwards on the mountain? It's the same thing with information. Sometimes it just, you know, you can really fast track people when you can say, well, you know, I've already carved a path for you. Here it is. And and incrementally, this is how you're doing it. Get to this level, then stop and level off for a period of time. Then we'll start again tomorrow and then get this far and this far. And that's how I did it. I incrementally climbed my way to the top with many stops along the way. It's the same progress when you're training a dog. It's the same progress when you're accruing information yourself, I believe. Yeah. And uh, (laughs) not that I consider that I'm at the top of anything, but um, the mountain climbers that get to Everest, it's the Sherpas and the guides that do all the work. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cruising along, you know. Um, So I've enjoyed learning and training with other people and and learn and study and then still studying and learning. And that's one of the reasons I'm so excited about this project. I'm going to, I've already learned a lot. I've been doing research behind what they're doing and the, uh, papers that they use to support their proposal. I was reading those papers and uh, I've already learned a lot and I'm looking forward to learning more from the collaboration with PenVet. What Mm. can you tell us about that, Pat? So, I mean, that's what our listeners will be super interested in knowing is what are the differences between this, you know, like imprinting odor for drugs or explosives or whatever, you know, like when these samples arrive to you, what mm. what's that look like? What is it a sample of? Um, your controls, what are you going to use as a control? Now, I understand maybe you can't explain it all or whatever you can go into detail of and whatever detail you have available. I know I'm very, very interested in that uh, because it's so far out of the space of what I'm used to. What can you tell us about that? Well, I'm not really sure what I'm allowed to share at the moment. Um, That's a tricky it's a, you know, it's <laughs> yeah, a work yeah. in project, uh, work in process or progress. There we go. That's mm-hmm. English fails me from time to time. <laughs> <laughs> or I fail English, I guess. It's a work in progress, and I'm not sure exactly what level of detail they would like me to share, but we would, we would at some level, we would be 
studying or examining some body fluids mm-hmm. and um, we would like to the dog to compare the body fluids of a person that has COVID-19 with the body fluids of a person who does not have COVID-19. And we would hope that there's a difference and not just a difference between those two samples, but when you smell enough different samples of COVID-19. If you did 10 samples, say, you would be training the dog maybe just on 10 targets. And the dog says, okay, I know these 10 targets. Mm -hmm. But if you do 10, 20, 50, 60, 80, 100, uh, you add more and more targets of the body fluid from the positive COVID-19 positive individuals. Mm -hmm. There will be a common thread thread in there. And that's what we want them to identify. What is different about a human being when they are actively processing COVID-19 in their body? And to identify that, tell that difference from the person that's not um, what, you know, the exact chemical compounds. I don't think anyone knows that the differences in those volatile organic compounds. Do you imagine that will be viable in the future that imagine you have a thousand different compounds, a a thousand different samples and the dog has narrowed it down and is really hitting on a novel one that you bring in and is indicating correctly. Do you think the process then is in the future that to have dogs that can identify it or do you think it's then to, to figure out what it is that dog was identifying to develop some other test? Because I remember reading many years ago that with cancer detection, that it was probably, you know, not viable to have cancer detecting dogs, but to then use what the dog was telling us to say, well, what is the figuring out what it is, the compound that the dog mm. was testing and having some sort of synthetic test or something like that, that could replace the dog in the future. Well, I'm a dog trainer, so I hope we're not trying to figure out how to put the dogs out of work. Um, <laughs> yeah, with you. I'm with you. I'm, I'm hoping we can figure out ways to put more dogs to work. I was just imagining, now this isn't anything from PenVet, but I was just imagining if we can find a way to, if we can prove that dogs can tell with 19 positive, if the next pandemic comes, they could rapidly grab samples and could tell there. Mm. Or... Imagine a weaponized virus Mm -hmm. from a belligerent country or a a hostile group. If you could quickly spin up dogs, once you know how to train for that difference, we could quickly spin up dogs for for another virus. Um, Mm. And and again, I think uh, just all layers on. I suspect that it would be nice to have dogs maybe, again, just imagining, suppose... uh, you want to clear dogs before, like you said, before the airplane. Mm-hmm. You want to clear people before the airplane flights. You can have maybe a medical certificate. I've had it. I've cleared it. I'm immune to it. Yep. And then other people, you can do a quick sweep of them. And so, oh, I'm sorry, you know, please step over here. We, we need to talk to you first. So you could do, I think there's lots of applications for using a dog for the real time scan mm-hmm. that um, it happens right now. It doesn't take time to process it. Sometimes, you know, they talk about a half hour lag on some of the tests, but some of them are three days to get the results back. It might be a half hour test, but it takes three days to get the results. Mm -hmm. That's not going to help you when you're trying to load a plane. That's right. Yeah. And I think that's going to be the amazing benefit of dogs is Mm -hmm. that immediate response right there. And I think it'd be interesting because, you know, nowadays, like it's certainly an arson detection dog, like a dog can put you in jail, right? Like a dog can Mm. be the evidence that puts you away. Like it's, we have the proof that a suitably trained dog 
is reliable to that point of where we're willing to give people a conviction over it, you would expect now that it would be reasonable to assume that you could give someone a clear bill of health or from that particular virus, right, from the dog. Or let's think of another, I've helped guys that were training arson dogs, let me say that, but I've never trained an arson dog. So, you know, in training seminars or working with Mm -hmm. a group, this one might be doing narcotics, this one's doing explosives, this one's doing arson. So I have helped guys train in arson dogs. So I'm speaking as an outsider, but I believe the way they use them here is to help narrow the field down. So they come into a house and the guy has a pretty good idea looking around that he thinks it's the fire was started over in this corner. Mm-hmm. Then they go over and instead of taking up a seven foot square piece of carpet, the dog goes through and he pinpoints and he says here. And so now they can take that little sample and they run the laboratory runs a check on that sample instead of running a sample, instead of trying to run a, a seven foot square piece of carpet through mm-hmm. the analyzer. So I think they're winnowing down the field maybe a way with the dogs as a rapid detection, a rapid check. Think of, uh, well, we just had a big problem with an aircraft carrier. All the guys coming back off of leave or something. Mm-hmm. If you could walk the plank past the dog and do a quick scan for coronavirus, what a lifesaver that would be. Totally. Oh, it's a game changer if you can get it right. It'll change the world, not just now, but forevermore in, as you said, you know, future operations. Because the whole world got caught with their pants down with coronavirus. I was watching a TED talk with Bill Gates that was back in 2015 when he was sort of alerting to the fact that something like this could pop up and cause problems for us. And, you know, he was suggesting that governments really need to lift the game with research and get ready for the next worldwide pandemic because they follow suit. And if you look at the 100-year history of the world, it's been pandemic time. Every 100 years, there's been some sort of awful pandemic that's wiped out hundreds of thousands and even millions of the of the population. So he indicated it's coming, it's going to be there. And lo and behold, it did. There was advice given and options given and there were no grants available to researchers to be on. People weren't looking in that direction, I guess is what I'm trying to say. And now that we do have the unfortunate of luxury of, of time on our side where we're all sitting there in social isolation from each other, this is the time for people to start putting our great minds to work. I think that somebody in a parallel conversation was talking about during the former pandemic, this is when Isaac Newton developed the theory of relativity, I believe, or uh, gravity. I've heard that, yeah, gravity. Yeah. Gravity, yeah. yeah. This is the time for, for great minds to be coming together and, and getting involved in this. And, you know, this is why Pat and I were so eager to speak to you because this really is deserving of a lot of people's attention. And I think if there is money out there, I know money is a concern for people at the moment with the uncertainty of work and so forth, but there still is money out there. And I really feel that government should be getting behind this sort of testing as well. Like, I mean, they should be injecting a lot of money behind this and saying, well, this is an area of interest. We really need to pursue all aspects because somebody's going to get it right somewhere along the line and we really need to be better prepared for this and funding research. Yeah, I'm a firm believer and someone... I, you know, I wish I knew who said it, but somebody said, anything we do before the pandemic will seem alarmist. Anything we do after will seem too little Mm -hmm. um, or ineffective, will seem ineffective. And so now that it's here, and not just this one, but other threats, dogs have proven they can detect all kinds of explosives, all kinds of narcotics. They have proven they can detect 
drops in blood sugar. And again, they're not actually there. I don't believe they're actually checking the blood sugar level, but they're smelling the difference in the human in that mm-hmm. plume around them when, when their blood sugar is changing, that they can detect cancers in uh, both in petri dishes and on humans. And so here, if we can work out the path to training them to detect the difference in this virus positive individual, I think the applications for right now are huge. And then for down the road, the next one, the next weaponized one, this isn't going to be the only time. Oh, you know, I, I pray and I pray this is the only time in our lifetime we have this thing, not just COVID, but this worldwide pandemic. But it might not be. And people try to weaponize problems when they see problems. They try to use them to their advantage. Mm. The dogs have proven that they can detect down to parts per trillion different chemicals. And so now if we can find that change in the people that are positive but not symptomatic, I think it'll be a huge help here and in the future. Absolutely. It's a very exciting project. And, and really once again, is. just tell us, it's the PenVet. What's the website that people can go to? PenVet Working Dog Center. And I sent the link to you on Messenger. Yeah, we'll post it. We'll- and, and I will send Cynthia Otto's name to you to make sure that she's the principal researcher on this project. Perfect. Mm-hmm. And, and again, it is a, an honor for me and a privilege and a challenge to be invited and included and um, Mate, I'm I think really they've excited made a, about they've the made a good decision. There's probably no one better to do it. Mm, I agree. Uh, oh, one, one thing I wanted to ask you about is I know one of the reasons I think you're the man to do it as well is because your access to dogs. I know a lot of the bite dog people now are really hurting with no dog imports going on, right? So how is that, that probably doesn't affect you in the Labrador world. Like you from the retriever world, you guys have got the good bloodlines and you're not looking They're to in country. import. You've got access to it all. I mean, within the realms of getting a good dog is hard to find any day, but the ban on importing dogs at the moment probably doesn't affect you too much or, or at all. It's not directly affecting this project. It will, I mean, it will drive the price of single purpose dogs up. Mm-hmm. And at one level, I mean, and I say it's not, in, it's not affecting, at one level it is. I had spoken to some importers in, in Europe and in uh, south of our border. And um, not that we don't have wonderful dogs here, but um, just reaching out and looking around. I put out a notice on Facebook and it was a friend suggested it. It was a wonderful idea. I got a lot of response, a huge response, more dogs than we could ever hope to use that I have to evaluate some. And and because of the challenges of shipping and chain and to get around to look and test dogs, it's easier for me if we can test dogs that are on the East Coast and, and yeah. one thing and another. I mean, but I got a lot of dogs available, but it, it is going to drive the price of the animals up if yeah. uh, they don't open that back up soon. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Well, folks, there you have it. There's a fantastic opportunity available for everybody around the world to get behind something. And I believe this is a good crowdfunding exercise that people can put something behind because this could be a game changer for the current situation we're in. You, I know you're really excited about it. I yeah. am too. And I think I agree with you. I think, you know, Pat's the right guy to get behind this and, and lead this research process off. Now what we just need well, is- thank you. But again, I, I'm not leading the research. I thank you so much. Well, you are in the dogs. In the, and for your confidence. In the, in, the, in, in, the, in the dog aspect, I, I should rephrase that. In the dog aspect, you are. Not in the in the scientific or the academic side of it, but certainly in, in working with the dogs. One thing I'll say on that, Pat, without blowing too much smoke up your ass, you know we're big fans, but- <laughs> 
I, like you, like to read a lot of scientific papers and one of the issues I find is the outcomes that they conclude, I don't always necessarily think are the truth of the science. They're more the truth of the skill of the trainer. Mm. That can sometimes be a real big piece of it. Like, you know, at, you know, you said you listened to that interview with me and Jerry were talking about the studies done on the use of markers and whether a use of a marker is any better than not. And I think any dog trainer can identify of course, like how else are you going to reinforce a dog at distance without a marker, mm. right? And and also how on earth a marker exists, whether you expect it to or not. And any dog training person, me and Jerry agreed on that, any dog training person can for sure identify that. And I think a lot of the time in a lot of scientific work, the dog trainer who actually does the training is sometimes just one of the undergrad students that is the person who they say, okay, you're the one that's going to do this, not a highly skilled dog trainer. And I think it, what's fantastic about this is that they've got you to do this so that it, if it turns out to not be possible, no one's going to read this and say, well, oh, it was because they didn't have a guy who knew what they were doing. Like it wasn't just, it wasn't just some Jono who got told you're the scent detection yeah, guy for the point. day. You know what I mean? So I think that this is why it's well, such a really worthwhile thing to support because mm. it would be, it would be, if it's possible, you can do it. And if it concludes that no, we can't like the, there's too many variables and a dog can't distinguish that, which is unlikely, but imagine that was the case then the idea of say oh well the trainer wasn't up to it and maybe they contaminated they didn't know what they were doing that's off the table so yeah i'm excited about it i'm really yeah. keen to see how it goes and and track it and we need I'd to love do any updates interview. yeah, yeah love I any think. updates that you can give us along the way would be awesome i'd like that and again cynthia otto is the principal investigator and i i should know but i don't know without looking up the secondary investigator there and there are more than one possible approaches to detecting this on a human, this change on a human. So if it turns out that this way doesn't work, it doesn't necessarily mean that you can't mm -hmm. detect the changes in a human. It would mean that this was not the right fluid to use or the not, not the right approach. Sure. But I think the dogs can do it, and I think they have a real good research plan. I think this is a, uh, a good opportunity for the dogs to show what they can do. And, and again, I'm honored to have an opportunity to contribute and I'm excited about it. So, awesome. Thank you. Well, thanks again, mate. Thanks, thanks. for coming on and talking yeah, to absolutely. us about it. Thanks guys. All right, Glenn, anything else? As I said before, I'm, I share everyone's optimism over it. I'm really excited to see the follow-up on it. So I really do believe that at some stage we really need to get together again after you've had a little bit of time in the field and you've been cleared to talk about it because it is, it's very exciting especially considering the situation we all find ourselves in. I think it, for me, it's kind of one of those on the edge of the seat sort of conversations. I'm, I'm really, I never wish my life away, but I really wish I was six weeks down the track now so I could get progress on it, but we'll have to wait. So, you know, the reward will come incrementally as we get along a little bit because, yeah, I'm really keen to see how it goes. Me too. I'm excited. Mm. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thank you. All right, that's it for another episode of the Canine Paradigm. As always, if you like what you hear, please like, rate, share, subscribe. Do that through whatever subscription service you download us from. If you want to support the show, the best way to do that is via Patreon. Speaking of scent detection stuff, Glenn's got more on that coming out pretty soon. That's yep. all available on Patreon. And if you want to support the show, you could buy some cool merch. Teespring's still shipping. People still getting their cool gear. And people are still supporting. So thank you so, so much. That's true. And please support the cause that Pat's putting forward. Obviously, there's going to be some form of crowdfunding operation happening for that somewhere along the line. We might talk to the ICP if we can get them involved somehow. Yeah, I think that everybody involved in dogs, this is a way to help. Absolutely. Sure. Absolutely.
And if you want to get in contact with us, the best way to do that is to post in the discussion group on Facebook. Uh, worst case scenario, shoot us an email and we'll get to that at some stage in our lives. Mm. Glenn, music. <laughs> He's hitting his button. Oh. <laughs> Here we go.